Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we're going to be telling you guys about the story of Chris Benoit. So pour yourself some coffee and let's dive in. Hey guys, I just wanted to jump in here really quickly and let you guys know that we are going to have to put a pause on launching our profile on Buy Me a Coffee. They are under a little bit of construction right now for podcast users and for releasing podcasts. So until we are able to officially start that, we are just going to keep things as they are on Patreon. We will make sure to give you guys a notice prior to switching to Buy Me a Coffee probably about a month ahead of time just so that you guys have time to create an account and switch over if you'd like to do that and join us over on buy me a coffee but thank you guys so much for listening and we'll keep you updated so this is a case suggestion from listener jamie p so thank you jamie christopher michael benoit otherwise known as chris benoit was born may 21st 1967 in montreal quebec canada around age 12 he decided that he really wanted to become a professional wrestler. He had been watching wrestling for many years of his life, and he decided that this was going to be the goal that he had, which for many children, I feel like a lot of times they set goals like that where they see somebody on TV or something. For example, when my brother was that old, he always wanted to become a professional racer because he saw people on television racing all the time. But it was a little bit different for Chris. He completely changed his life and started working directly towards this goal. He wrestled throughout school and in high school, he won many awards for wrestling and bodybuilding. And this was all that he could focus on his entire high school career and after. His two big inspirations when he was a child for wrestling were some people named Tom Billington and Bret Hart. So he went to multiple of their shows to watch these guys perform. And when he was training, he would use their moves during his practice. In 1985, when he was 18 years old, Chris started pro wrestling and pretty quickly earned the nickname Dynamite due to his speed and his strength. I love how wrestlers always have a name. Like a lot of times it's not just their name. They have some nickname with it and it's great. Yeah, they not only wrestle and like that's what they do but they also i feel like take on this persona of somebody else and this whole character where they're like i am dynamite once i put this costume on <laughs> i went <laughs> i want that on a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> okay i'll get you one thank you so he honestly became a very successful wrestler over the years he did have a lot of feuds with many other wrestlers and he ended up earning the nickname crippler benoit because he typically was the one starting these feuds and disputes. So now he's Dynamite and Crippler Benoit. I think it depends if he's on or off the wrestling mat. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Throughout his time as a wrestler, he did earn 22 major wrestling titles. I'm going to be honest. That seems like a lot. Have I ever followed wrestling though? No. Do I have any idea whether 22 is like an insane amount? No. I have no idea, but I do know that he was known as a pro wrestler and that it was impressive. So I don't know, like I said, though, what a typical wrestler would have for titles. In 1988, Chris married a woman named Martina 
and obviously her name became Martina Benoit. They did not last very long, and in 1997, they did end up getting divorced after having two children together. After the divorce, he started an affair with a woman named Nancy Sullivan. Is it an affair if they were split up? Yes, it is, because she was married. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. She was married to Kevin Sullivan. And Abby, I want you to guess what Kevin's professional career was. Was it wrestling? It was. And I'm just not so sure that that was the best move on his part. (laughs) So in 2000, the couple ended up giving birth to a son named Daniel. And then Nancy and Chris got married right around the same time. I assume at this point she left her husband then? Yes, she did end up leaving Kevin. The relationship between Kevin and Chris, though, obviously was very strained in the professional world. There was a lot of animosity between the two, obviously, because Chris and Nancy were going behind Kevin's back. And a lot of people in the wrestling world did know about this. But like I said, he had already been called Crippler Benoit for a reason because he was starting all these feuds and they kind of just attributed everything to this being a part of his character. That he was just kind of a douchebag. In 2003, something happens where Nancy decides that she's going to file for divorce against Chris. And she ends up actually filing for a restraining order against him as well saying that he was extremely violent in the home and had a lot of aggressive behaviors. So it's sounding like his work was carrying over. Maybe it's not so much a persona. Very much so. I think he was struggling with definitely keeping the two separate and realizing when he was supposed to be physically aggressive and when he was not. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So Nancy did what she felt like was best for her and her son Daniel, and she filed a restraining order and filed for divorce. Chris obviously was under a lot of stress at this time because he was in the middle of a divorce from his wife. He had a restraining order against his son. And so he started taking steroids and testosterone in order to assist with his wrestling. It wasn't a super long break, though, and Nancy ended up coming back to Chris and deciding that she wanted to try to work it out. She was not interested in giving up on the marriage at this point. So they were trying to make things work again. They got back together, trying to act like everything was normal. But obviously, there was a strain on the relationship at this point. Chris had been physically violent, and Nancy had tried to leave. So obviously, Nancy was upset with Chris because of the violence, and Chris was upset with Nancy for leaving and taking their son. So it just was not the best situation for the two of them to be in at the time. So about four years later, on June 25th, 2007, police receive a phone call of somebody requesting that they do a welfare check on Chris because he'd missed multiple appointments for work and they were starting to get concerned. So police arrive at the home and when they get there, they end up discovering the dead bodies of Chris, 
Nancy, and their seven-year-old son, Daniel. When they found Nancy, she was wrapped in a towel and was said to have died from asphyxiation. Daniel was found suffocated, and I believe he was found in his bedroom. And then Chris was found in his workout room, hanging on his pull-down machine. So there was a cable tie around his neck, and somebody had put a heavy weight on the other side so that when it dropped, it pulled up and snapped his neck immediately. So was that something he could have done himself or? Yes. So very quickly, they're like, this was absolutely a murder-suicide. So they found 10 empty beer cans and an empty bottle of wine near Chris from where he was hanging. And Chris had also placed a Bible next to both Daniel, Nancy, and his own body at the time of the murder. One of the things that really led police to realize that Chris had done this was the last two searches that he had made on his home computer. One of the searches that he had made was a passage from the Bible where there's a son that is resurrected. And then there's another one. And this other search was the fastest and least painful way to break your neck. Okay. Yep. All signs pointing to him committing a double murder suicide. Yes. So they believe that Chris killed Nancy one night and then the next day he killed Daniel and then the day after he killed himself. Was was that how the time of death was perceived? Yes. Interesting on the days between Nancy and Daniel because wouldn't you think Daniel would have noticed and tried to escape or was he restrained or... You would think that Daniel would have tried to escape, maybe, but he was seven years old. Oh, I guess I didn't realize he was that young. I don't know what all he obviously would have known, how much he would have Mm -hmm. known what was going on. Also, it says that he killed Nancy one day and Daniel the next. I don't know exact time of deaths, but it could have been he killed Nancy in the evening and then the next morning killed Daniel. Or maybe he had Nancy hidden and told Daniel like, hey, mom went out. She'll be back later. I don't know mom's sleeping don't go in there where was she found again so she was also killed in her bedroom right so i guess it would be relatively easy for daniel to have no idea or even if he did not even know what to do i mean he's a child and clearly something's going on i yeah i don't think that it's something that we can really speculate too much on because he is seven years old we have no idea what chris told him Whether Chris said, yeah, like you said, mom's sleeping or mom went out or it's possible that Daniel just didn't even have any idea. So they obviously completed autopsy results on the entire family. And in Daniel, they found Xanax. So they believe that Chris had drugged him with Xanax enough to make him unconscious. Which even further would explain why he didn't try to run. The only thing I have to say about that is, like, thankfully, he was unconscious at the time. Because mm-hmm. if a situation is going to occur where a child is murdered, I'd rather them not know what's occurring. You know? Yeah, as bad I as that is. Yeah, it's like the lesser of two evils. Absolutely. So Nancy also had trace amounts of alprazolam and hydrocodone in her system. They did say that both the levels were low enough, so they didn't know that it was connected to the murder. They don't think that he drugged her. They just think that they happen to be in her system. And those would have come from like a medication maybe. Yeah. So alprazolam is also Xanax, Mm. but it's 
can be used to treat anxiety and panic disorder. So they believe that that was just something that she was taking. Okay. Is what I understood is that was something she just took. And that's most likely what Chris then used on Daniel. And then hydrocodone is just like Tylenol. Nothing abnormal. Chris's toxicology report then showed that he also had the Xanax or the Alprazolam, hydrocodone, and a very high level of testosterone in his system. So the main question that we're left with is, why did he do it? And the simple answer is, we honestly have no idea. It seems like maybe he just woke up and kind of snapped one day. Yeah, I mean, for me, it sounds like they are having these ongoing issues. And when you're mixing alcohol, drugs, testosterone, which makes you maybe a little bit more aggressive, maybe it was just a very bad combo and he mixed with some potential mental health issues, just lost it. Yes, which is what we're going to get into, is the different theories of what could have caused Chris to snap and annihilate his family. Which also reminds me that if you guys just listened to our Watts family story, we talked about family annihilation in that, in depth, in our third part of that episode. So if you want to learn more about family annihilation, this is something that directly is also considered family annihilation. So one of the tests that was done on Chris was on his brain during the autopsy and they said that his brain looked the exact same as it would in an 85 year old Alzheimer's patient what that's kind of insane yes yeah so they believe that this was due to the fact that he'd been hit so many times in the head during his career oh yeah you know, doing something for that extended amount of time that's constantly giving your body an impact and causing injuries, even if it's minor, is not good for your brain. That's why there's all these studies coming out about football players and how it's seriously impacting them to be playing football their whole life. And as you said, he started wrestling very young. Yes, he did. One other thing is when Chris was six years old, he was in a car accident where he went through a windshield. And obviously injured his head during that. They didn't see it necessarily any like brain trauma at that point in time. But that is something that could also be considered a hit to the head. And overall, all of those hits to the head can cause things like that. So all of these things could have been causing a lot of different aggression. Alzheimer's patients can show all kinds of different signs of things. There is a term called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So this is a term that's used to describe brain degeneration that's caused by repeated head traumas. So this is going to be what you're seeing in a lot of the football players like Abby was talking about and wrestlers and anybody who's doing those hard contact sports where they're frequently being hit in the head, frequently receiving concussions. I mean, that's why if you are an individual who's received multiple concussions, your doctor will say you need to stop playing this sport because constant traumatic brain injuries can be very detrimental to your health. So it's possible that he was experiencing that. I do think it's really interesting that he had the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. So Alzheimer's patients, for those of you that don't know, basically their brain is degenerating. So their brain is kind of shrinking. There's different parts that are damaging and kind of, I don't, not necessarily disappearing, but they're damaging enough that they're not working properly. So he was slowly losing his brain. And if it was affecting specific parts of his brain, he would be losing part of his personalities, part of his memory. I mean, when you start talking about damage to the brain, you can 
obviously lose any sort of any anything i mean memory personality movement yeah your brain controls it all yeah your brain is who like defines who you are as a person like it always kind of freaks me out to think about like your brain is you and then your body is just like kind of what it's wearing (laughs) it is really weird to think about it that way but that's a really good way to describe it and I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you guys all know how brains work. <laughs> you know what they do, I'm assuming. But I just want to make it like clear to you guys how insane it is that a 40-year-old man had the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. One of the other things that could have occurred from the trauma would be things like mental illness or depression. Head trauma can obviously cause a lot of different things. So if he was experiencing some sort of depression, that could have led to him wanting to end his own life. And for whatever reason, he would have wanted to take his family with him. So if he was experiencing depression, now I did not find anywhere specifically what his specific religious beliefs were, but it did say that he had one of his last searches was about the son who was resurrected in the bible so i don't know what his exact religious beliefs were but one of his last searches was about a son in the bible being resurrected this occurs multiple times in the bible i did not find the exact reference that he had looked up but if he had a belief that he was somehow doing this as an offering to god and he felt like if he killed his son god would forgive him in the afterlife for other things or whatever it was that he was experiencing but if we rem- if you remember, I said he placed Bibles next to all of their bodies. And that was one of the last searches he had. It almost makes it seem like he had some sort of religious reason behind what he was doing. The other theory kind of along with the depression and him wanting to commit suicide and just taking his family with him was his best friend, Eddie Guerrero, passed away suddenly at the age of 38. And this was not too long prior to the murders themselves and chris took this death very hard obviously and so it's believed that he could have just really been struggling with depression in himself and once again wanted to take his own life and for one reason or another decided that he needed to take his family with him the other two theories that i came across were just like i said there was alcohol around him maybe he had in a drunken rage killed his wife felt guilty took his son out and then himself or in a drunken rage killed both of them and then felt so guilty that he took himself out they also found a lot of testosterone in his system so it could have been the steroids that led him to killing his wife and son and then once again he kind of came down off of that high a little bit and decided to kill himself because he felt guilty Right. And as we know, he obviously had an aggressive lifestyle and aggressive past, which we know from that restraining order and add testosterone into the mix. That's not a good combo. No, I would not consider that a great mix of things. And I think that Nancy was really following her gut when she made the decision to leave Chris. This honestly was a really hard case to find a lot of information for. And I think that she decided to go back to him just to give him another chance. I don't really know that we need much of a reason for why she did. It's very, very common for women to go back to abusive partners or for men to go back to abusive partners. It's just a very common thing that we see. There's not really a rhyme or a reason, but I think that she was following her gut and then maybe her gut led her back to Chris, but it's just really unfortunate to see how this whole thing played out. So as I had mentioned, Chris did have two other children in his first marriage and they were David and Megan. David actually came out and did an interview in 2020 
where he was talking about his father murdering his other family. And he truly believes that his dad was not himself. He said that his dad had never acted like that. He wouldn't have acted like that. He doesn't know what occurred. He fully believes that it was the brain damage that caused all of this, that he did have chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE. It's a lot easier to say. So he full-heartedly believes that it was brain damage. David did say that the last time that he got to speak with his dad was Father's Day of 2007. And he said that they got to talk for a few hours, but that was the last time that he got to tell his dad he loved him before his dad decided to take his own life and that of Nancy and Daniel. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.